very much, Anna, and thank you to the Assembly for the invitation uh, for today. Uh, so I am going to be presenting um, some research funded by the UK Global Challenges Research Fund uh, as part of the Gender, Justice and Security Hub, uh, an initiative led by the London School of Economics. Uh, and this is research I've been working on with my colleague, Professor Fanula Nielon, who holds a joint position in Minnesota and Queens, and Dr. Lena Malagon, who's now at the University of Wales, Trinity St. David. Um, and we are doing a sort of stop take of the Good Friday or Belfast Agreement at 25, uh, relying especially on uh, interviews with approximately 20 members of Northern Ireland civil society, different uh, people within Northern Ireland civil society, uh, as well as reviewing the different documentation associated with the agreement. And um, we're looking at it through the perspective of uh, what some people have called transformative justice or transformative change. Uh, so we could look at the agreement, and many people have looked at the agreement through uh, accepted notions of transitional justice, how do societies deal with the transition from conflict uh, to a more peaceful society. Uh, but increasingly in the literature, there are, in the academic literature, in transitional justice and in human rights and in peace building, uh, there are concerns that some of the approaches and those traditional approaches don't necessarily get to grips with the root causes of conflict uh, and therefore don't enable more uh, wide-ranging transformative change uh, which deals with the underpinning causes of conflict uh, and all the disadvantages that come from that. Uh, and in doing this, we take a look at, uh, we rely on Clara Sandoval's distinction between different types of change, ordinary change, um, which does not really challenge uh, mainstream institutions or ideologies. Uh, but then also structural or institutional change, uh, which uh, does more serious amendments to existing uh, systems, and what she calls foundational or fundamental change, uh, that would look uh, to changing the fundamental underpinning ideologies of the social system. And I suppose so we'll look for this through the promise, power, uh, reasserting itself, and issues of solidarity. In terms of the promise of the Good Friday Agreement or the Belfast Agreement. Uh, in many ways, the agreement seems to offer a, a vision of a more uh, transformed, peaceful, uh, rights-respecting future. Uh, and several of its, several of the different changes it proposes uh, look to what Sandoval would call structural or fundamental change. Uh, notably changes to the power sharing or the introduction of power sharing institutions, which is radically different from the type of government that existed under Northern Ireland's first experiment with devolution. Uh, the recognition of uh, really innovative uh, changes such as the possibility of a border pole, possibility for the people of Northern Ireland to decide to leave the United Kingdom and unite with the Republic of Ireland. The creation of transnational institutions, be they north-south or east-west, uh, which show genuine constitutional imagination at the time. Uh, and 
not, a, not precisely part of the agreement itself, but part of the wider peace process, uh, wide-ranging changes to policing and justice. Um, but there's more in the agreement. Uh, there is a lot in the agreement on human rights and equality. Uh, and there is a lot in the agreement on what are variously called economic, social and cultural rights. Uh, the, the language morphs into economic and social issues in different places. And beyond this, the agreement seems to um, herald a vision of a more participatory oriented future. Uh, there's inclusions of uh, the idea of equality mainstreaming, what we now call Section 75, equality mainstreaming, uh, which includes participatory mechanisms for people to be involved in equality screening. Uh, and there is a, a, an innovative idea that at the time it seemed quite exciting of a civic forum. Uh, there's even a reference now long forgotten until you go back and read the agreement, reread the agreement of a possible all-island civic forum uh, that never materialized. Uh, so there is a lot of promise in the Good Friday or Belfast Agreement. Um, looking at it now, uh, one can feel a certain degree of disappointment, a sense of opportunities, many opportunities lost. Uh, as 25 years later, uh, we don't have a functioning government uh, in Northern Ireland. Uh, many of the undertakings in the agreement don't seem to have been delivered, or when they have been delivered, there seems to have been a rollback. In some cases, some parts of the agreement may seem to be part of the problem itself. Uh, there, it, nobody can deny the vital importance uh, that large-scale organized Political violence is a thing of the past, but uh, direct violence is not itself gone, and people have still died uh, at the hands of paramilitaries in Northern Ireland since the agreement. Uh, and indeed, we have ongoing problems with uh, what some people call structural violence, or issues of disadvantage and marginalization, um, which are arguably part of the conditions in the 1960s that led to the conflict in the first place. Uh, and this issue, of course, becomes even particularly poignant this week as we find out the scale of budget cuts uh, coming to Northern Ireland departments, which, as colleagues of mine have been very prolific pointing out this week, will really hit the most vulnerable in our society. Uh, so if there was a promise of transformative change in the agreement, um, it's difficult to say that it has been achieved. And one of the things we wanted to do is much for people in other societies who are also dealing with their own conflicts, uh, dealing with the construction of their own peace agreements, is understand from the perspective of our civil society interlocutors uh, just what were the kinds of things that caused um, uh, this disappointment, uh, this failure to deliver, it would seem, on some of the transformative promises of the agreement. And we identify five issues in particular, uh, but there could well, of course, be others. Uh, one goes to um, the language of the agreement, um, the way in which in some areas it may be imprecise, it may even unhelpfully reinforce certain hierarchies uh, that are not helpful. Uh, so uh, we have, for instance, references to civil and political, economic, social and cultural rights, uh, but already in parts of the agreement, um, economic, social, and cultural rights get hived off and become economic and social issues. Uh, there is a list of rights in the agreement in the section on rights, safeguards, and equality of opportunity. Uh, 
which very much prioritizes classic civil and political rights, um, and arguably uh, also um, pr prioritizes a, a two communities vision of the, the nature of the challenge in Northern Ireland. Um, so we ha have also imprecision or constructive ambiguity, if you like, in areas like the uh, commitment to have a Northern Ireland Bill of Rights. Uh, we don't have much detail on uh, what should be in a Bill of Rights, uh, such as is set out in the Good Friday Agreement. Instead, we have a process, uh, and uh, we've been arguing for 25 years about what all of that actually means, with many periods of limbo in between. Uh, our civil society interlocutors also regularly go back to the concern that the agreement itself um, is not really enforceable, so we have these commitments in the agreement, uh, but except in so far as they have been legislated for, say in the Northern Ireland Act 1998, uh, there's no real mechanism to enforce the agreement, so the agreement itself um, and subsequent agreements like St Andrews and so on aren't uh, enforceable. Um, Ireland has a long-standing reservation to the jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice relating to issues about Northern Ireland, so the International Court of Justice is uh, not a venue that would be helpful. Uh, and more recently, uh, there's been some disturbing instances where the recent UK government uh, has introduced legislation that seems to indicate it does not take very seriously its commitments under international law, uh, in particular in the first draft of the UK Internal Market Bill uh, and later in the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. Um, there seemed to be a, a willingness to go back on international agreements that have been made very, very recently indeed uh, in the context of those domestic pieces of legislation. Uh, our interlocutor is also uh, refer to a concern that sometimes there's too much emphasis on procedure rather than substance uh, in the delivery of equality and human rights. Uh, and part of that is the issue around the Bill of Rights promise in the agreement because there isn't a substantive Bill of Rights in there. There is a, a vague hint to some sort of process to bring about a Bill of Rights. Uh, but it is also a long-standing uh, complaint about one of the uh, mechanisms in the agreement, the introduction of equality mainstreaming uh, in what was then, 1998, Northern Ireland Act, Section 75, a very uh, radical, innovative, trailblazing equality mainstreaming provision. Um, and some of our uh, interview participants look back and remind us how trailblazing those commitments were back in 1998 and how Northern Ireland was at the forefront of equality legislation, uh, but that is no longer the case. You know? And in fact, uh, we are now well behind in many ways uh, in terms of equalities, protections in these islands. Uh, and partly that's because of the uh, highly proceduralist approach taken to the way equality mainstreaming has been introduced under Section 75. Uh, and, um, of course, the big issue, perhaps the biggest issue, is the nature of power sharing uh, itself, uh, because the power sharing institutions uh, set up in 1998 uh, include um, confidence building measures uh, for the political representatives of the two main communities, uh, which include 
uh, cross-community voting rules and the possibility for a petition of concern to subject any vote in the assembly to those cross-community voting rules. Uh, and since then, those cross-community voting rules have been enhanced with in, uh, innovations in the St. Andrews Agreement, which introduces similar mechanisms into the executive as well. Um, and there are difficulties with it. Of course, these are essential confidence-building measures for uh, two communities that have uh, arguably traditionally never trusted each other, or their political representatives have never trusted each other. Uh, but at the same time, uh, such power-sharing mechanisms have a number of well-known defects or risks. Um, they can stymie change, any kind of change, uh, which I suppose if it's being used to stymie regressive change, you might be content with, but very often that's not the reason why such measures are being used. Um, they can, according to uh, our interlocutors again, uh, create a situation whereby the leading political actors are looking for situations for political solutions that will keep both sides happy, but that's not necessarily the same thing as introducing uh, social reforms that may be necessary. Uh, there may be concerns with power sharing that it also uh, reinforces um, gendered aspects of decision-making, uh, that it may f act as a barrier to introducing uh, reforms that uh, address issues of gender equality. Uh, famously, for instance, uh, the former First Minister of Northern Ireland couldn't countenance the introduction of legislation that dealt with um, the rights of people from the trans community. Uh, and ultimately, the UK government had to legislate for that issue over the heads of the Northern Ireland institutions. Um, but also, the uh, way in which the St Andrews power-sharing rules have been interpreted uh, were used to delay some of the reforms in relation to the introduction of abortion services in Northern Ireland. Um, and so, uh, again, it comes out... Uh, that our interlocutors criticise parties on both sides of the traditional divide uh, for how they use and how they play the cross-community voting rules. Connected uh, with this is um, a sense that the agreement, whilst it did introduce many important changes to existing power structures in terms of power sharing institutions and the central political institutions in terms of changes to policing and security, uh, left untouched other parts of uh, existing power structures. So one of our interlocutors said that really um, in 1998 we were a bit naive in thinking we were getting all of these progressive promises and we never thought about who would actually be the people who would be implementing them, who would be the civil service. I realize I'm probably speaking to an audience that's half full of civil servants, um, so we can maybe chat about that later. Uh, but if the civil service was one institution that wasn't particularly discussed at all in the agreement, uh, and maybe uh, the traditional ethos of the civil service, uh, the way it's conceived in these islands for all of its strengths, uh, isn't helpful in terms of delivering transformative change. And we also have the concern that certain informal power structures, such as patriarchy, have not really been touched by the agreement. The agreement itself has some uh, very nice language about women's full and equal participation and the right to equality. 
Um, but there is no structures or mechanisms to deliver on that. Uh, there's no commitment to the Women, Peace and Security Agenda of the United Nations. Uh, we do have a situation, as uh, some of our participants point out, where yes, you do have individual women who have great success. At the time we were doing our interviews, uh, quite a few of the leaders of the political parties were all women. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there were necessarily structures and policies in place to ensure that that was replicated throughout uh, political, civil, economic, social and cultural spheres. Uh, so you also have other areas where um, sometimes very uh, gender-blind decisions would be made, uh, or sometimes very startling decisions, uh, like the creation of a fairly large commission to look at cultural issues in Northern Ireland, uh, which only had one nominated woman sitting on it, um, which again uh, speaks to something about the patriarchal assumptions in Northern Ireland. There is certainly promise still, there's certainly potential, um, and we wouldn't want to think that things are all negative. Uh, we do think that there is quite a lot of uh, initiatives coming in, in different areas, but in particular from civil society groups uh, who are sometimes engaged in strategic litigation in order to try to uh, encourage the official institutions to move along. Uh, uh, for instance, uh, the Committee on the Administration of Justice took um, a piece of strategic litigation about the failure of the Northern Ireland Executive to adopt an anti-poverty strategy, even though that seemed to be a fairly clear, unambiguous legal requirement in the St. Andrews Agreement Act, and that litigation was successful, though we still don't have an anti-poverty strategy, to go back to the earlier issues. Uh, but it's not just strategic litigation. Um, Northern Ireland civil society has also been imaginative in coming up with ideas like a feminist recovery post-COVID, uh, coming up with ideas for rights-based return to power sharing. Uh, so um, Iris Marion Young, an American philosopher, says one of the great things about civil society is their imagination, their ability to come up with new ideas. And we certainly have uh, no end of new ideas coming from uh, different civil society groups in Northern Ireland. Uh, one of the most uh, interesting features about Northern Ireland civil society, uh, and this is the solidarity element, is the strength not of individuals, of the society organizations as such, uh, but the existence of very strong networks uh, such as the Human Rights Consortium, the Equality Coalition, Alliance for Choice, uh, and others. Uh, and it's uh, quite interesting to see just how those different organizations can support each other, uh, can provide the resources of solidarity uh, that help them continue their work uh, in what is sometimes very unpropitious context. So, um, to conclude, we have sought to, in our work, uh, which was published yesterday in the Israel Law Review, uh, it's open access, I'm pleased to say, so everyone can freely read it. Um, I'm sure our friends can provide the link if anyone does need it. Uh, we wanted to take a look to understand just what are the barriers to transformative change, not just from our perspective, but also uh, to help with discussions with other people who are across the globe who are dealing with uh, what to do with situations of conflict and how to negotiate ag agreements. Um, we 
have identified our various problems. Um, I would say I wouldn't want people to go away with the idea that you have here, which maybe is what we've accidentally done, three lawyers who've said that actually what we need is more law. Uh, because we don't particularly think that necessarily. We do think law is important, but uh, one of the things that we are uh, conscious of is what, uh, indeed, uh, we've come to conclusion uh, that isn't that dissimilar to what feminist scholars have been saying for a long time, that actually the law and even rights are very unreliable vehicles for transformative change, uh, because they are in some ways inherently conservative. Um, and they don't deal with uh, the kinds of structural changes uh, that are necessary to have genuinely transformative change. So there are limits to rights and limits to law, uh, but we do remain committed to a, a critical approach to law and rights that says it does have potential uh, to help uh, with progressive change. It does play a legitimate role uh, in achieving fundamental change, but that crucially uh, transformative change, fundamental change, isn't something that happens overnight. It's not a bright spark. Uh, it's not a sudden change. It's something that happens through uh, struggle and through uh, often piecemeal initiatives, often painfully um, over time. Uh, but there, we still see a lot of hope in the activities of many people in Northern Ireland who do want to realize the vision of the Good Friday or Belfast Agreement. So, thank you.